Hi, this is Christian Kuhn of Urban Village Church in Chicago. You may remember me from podcasts you have listened to before, as it's been, it feels like it's been quite some time since I have recorded anything. Uh, some of that I was off for a week or two, another one that I recorded it live, and so it was on our uh, church's website, but not my own personal Podbean page. So for those of you who listen this way, my apologies for really having nothing new out there. I know, I'm, I just know that you have been waiting, just waiting for something from me uh, and that you are unable to get on with your life. That is probably not true, but here we are anyway. So I have something today and I'm excited about this sermon and about this new series we're starting at Urban Village. But before I share more about that, let me read the scripture for today. It comes from 1 Corinthians 13 verses 8 through 13. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. We know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, what is partial will be brought to an end. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, reason like a child, think like a child. But now that I have become a man, I have put an end to childish things. Now we see a reflection in a mirror, then we will see face to face. Now I know partially, but then I will know completely in the same way that I have been completely known. Now, faith, hope, and love remain, these three things, and the greatest of these is love. May God's blessing be on the reading and living out of this scripture. So, some of you know that about a year or so ago, I recently bought a fedora, and uh, some people commented on my fashion sense, which always makes me feel good, of course, but buying this hat wasn't necessarily the reason, or making a fashion statement wasn't the reason for me to buy the hat. Uh, I went to the dermatologist a couple of years ago because I noticed on my scalp I had these little bumps and I wasn't quite sure what they were. They were a little annoying and I couldn't quite just rub them off, but they were there and I ignored it uh, until I think it was one day when I made some kind of comment about the bumps on my head and my wife uh, said to me, you need to go get those checked out. Uh, and I, at first I thought, ah, all right, all right, all right. So finally I went to the dermatologist and have him take a look at it. And uh, he looked at it and sometimes doctors will say, hmm, and you don't know exactly what it means. And so uh, he did a great job of explaining to me exactly what he thought they were and going through the whole process. And, you know, whenever they throw the word cancer in there, of course, you it grabs your attention. Now, he said that these are, uh, for now, benign growths. Uh, non-cancerous, but you never know what these could turn into. And so he took this little device that essentially froze these things off of my scalp. So that took care of those for now. But then he also said to me, you know, you're pretty fair-skinned. You really need to wear a hat. And he had said this to me before in previous years, like when I would go running in the morning, but I always thought, you know, I'm up so early in the run, the sun's really not even out then. But he was saying now, even as I'm walking around outside, obviously in the summer, you need to wear a hat. And that was the reasoning for my investing a little bit in this fedora. So, of course, if I'm going to wear a hat, I at least want to look a little bit good while doing so. So it took something for me to finally realize like this is something I need to really look into. This is something I need to pay attention to before it gets even more serious. Well, I noted earlier that we're starting a new sermon series here at Urban Village called In Formation, which is about creating a church without walls. 
if you've been an all-around urban village, particularly the last three or four years, you may know that uh, we've used this phrase. It's one of our core pillars of our strategic plan to be a church without walls. And I'm, I think when people hear this, I mean, it always sounds good. Some people may assume that it just means that we want to uh, go outside and make sure that we're engaging with people on the streets, or maybe people think that it means that we don't own a building, so we are creating a church without walls in that way. But really the phrase comes from some conversations we had a few years ago from individuals, from many individuals in our church who said that they wanted our church to be more diverse, more racially diverse. And as we explored that and explored what does it mean to be a more diverse church, we also got pushed from different people, too, to say, you know, it, it's fine to say you want to be a racially diverse church, but we cannot stop there. We also need to be and think about what does it mean to be an anti-racist church? What does it mean to be an organization that is actively looking to see and explore and look closely at our own practices as a faith community? And what are we doing to look into our society and do all we can to make sure that we are putting an end to practices that oppress individuals of certain races. We can't just come on Sundays and say, well, we have some, some good diversity here. We have to do more than that. We have to look at ourselves individually and as an organization, and we also need to look at our systems, at our society, at our city, especially here in Chicago, and say, what can we do to tear down oppressive systems. Now, this also may sound good, but sometimes when we talk about race and racism, I think this happens sometimes, especially among whites, there can be a couple of reactions that aren't really the most helpful, but I think they're all tied to the same thing. First of all, I think some folks, when they hear or talk about racism, they either explicitly or I think often implicitly ignore it, and they ignore it in a couple of different ways. One is what I think some have essentially alluded to as the President Obama factor. People have a, a notion, perhaps, of the civil rights movement when particularly African Americans were oppressed in very evident and visible ways of, for example, having blacks sit at the back of the bus. But now, this is decades later, and we elected a president, a black president, in 2008. And so, for some, they may think, Racism isn't a thing anymore, and so they kind of tune that part out in their minds. Or they may see or hear about a blatant racism happening uh, around them, uh, and they may think, well, that's not me, and so therefore I'm not racist, and I don't need to think about racism as much. So, for example, a few weeks ago, a United Methodist Church in Chicago, this is in the Pilsen neighborhood, which is a, a large Mexican and Mexican-American population there was a Methodist church there where someone went and spray-painted swastikas with the message, Rape Mexico, on the door, and in white paint across the glass doors of this Methodist church. And so people see that on the news and they think, well, I don't do those things. That's clearly racist. I don't do those things. It's too bad. It's awful that it happens. But because I don't do those things, therefore, I don't need to think about race or racism in my own life. Well, perhaps not surprisingly, we feel like we do, like all of us need to go deeper and beyond the surface and beyond just thinking, well, we want to be a diverse church. I, I want to embrace diversity. We need to go beyond that surface level understanding of race and go much, much deeper than that. 
As we read in our scripture today, this man named Paul talks about that we know things partially, but we want to know things more fully, that we see in a mirror dimly, but we need to see more clearly and in a, in a deeper way. And so we're going to explore that throughout this sermon series, but today, especially in what I'm about to share with you on this podcast. So a question that may come up is, well, why? Why should a church care about this? I mean, this seems like awfully political. Shouldn't this be better taken care of by other people? Well, we are a church that talks about being bold, inclusive, and relevant. And that bold piece is that we are rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which means that we are serious about following Jesus. We are serious about doing all we can to actually, you know, follow Jesus and imitate him as best we can. We'll talk more about this in our sermon next week, but Jesus was constantly looking closely at individuals, seeing who they were, seeing who they really were, and loving them. And then also doing all he could to break up systems that would oppress certain individuals that society has had cast aside or that society was oppressing itself. So Jesus did this in his interactions with women. He did this in his interactions with the poor. He did this in his interactions with with the sick and with Samaritans of people who had a different cultural and ethnic background. And society said that you should not spend A, either any or B, not much time with any of these segments of the population. And Jesus constantly broke those rules of society in order to let those individuals know that Jesus saw them, saw them who they were, all of who they were. And then also Jesus, by acting in this way, was working to break apart these oppressive systems. So if we are a church, if we are individuals who claim to follow Jesus, we must follow in what Jesus did. And this is what Jesus did, friends. And we also, as a church, do these things because, as our scripture says, love never fails. If we are called to love, and I hope that anyone who is a Christian or is at least remotely interested in following Jesus buys into that, if we are called to love, we are called to look and care and see that the brothers and sisters that we love who may be experiencing hate and oppression, we must do all we can to respond so that we can join in this Jesus movement and break this oppression and that we can see them as well and that we can fully love them. And you might think to yourself, this is great. I'm glad that a church is doing something. Where do we start? And the first reaction, I think sometimes when you think, how can I start? What can I do? What's a book that I can read? Or what's a training I can go through? And you may first think, well, let's look at Chicago, right? And all the the racial uh, oppressive systems that happen in our city. We think, all right, great. Where do we go? What systems are we going to attack first? But today I want to reflect with you and say the first thing that we have to start or the first place we have to start is with ourselves. We start with you and we take a hard look at ourselves and I am including myself into this as well. So the question is, where are you in your faith, when, especially when it comes to race? Do you follow Jesus? And if so, do you see individuals and see children of God? Or do you stop at superficiality and see skin color or ability or disability or immigration status? And if you say, well, 
I'm, I'm good. You know, I'm a good progressive. I, I, for example, I voted for Bernie Sanders. I, I don't need to do these things because I am fully uh, without bias in my life. And if that is true for you, then by all means, friends, come and tell me your secrets. Because I think if we're completely honest with ourselves, we see only in part. Again, this verse, for we now see in a mirror dimly. Another way of interpreting that little phrase, that the word dimly, is in a riddle. For now we see in a mirror dimly, or if we see in a mirror in a riddle, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, but then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. So what is going on here in this, in this scripture passage, and how is it related to us taking a good hard look to fully see ourselves, our own hearts, and our own biases. And that's the thing we need to do. So this, this passage is written by this man named Paul. This, this may sound familiar to you if you've been to a wedding. It's often read at weddings, this beautiful passage for weddings. And it's written by this man named Paul. Paul was somebody who experienced the resurrected Christ in a very powerful way, totally changed his life. And so he decided as one of the things that he wanted to respond to by having this powerful um, interaction with the resurrected Christ is he wanted to tell others about who Jesus was and he started churches as well. And so in what is today in Greece and in Turkey, Paul traveled all over these countries and these lands in order to tell people about Jesus and to start churches. So he started a church in the city called Corinth, which was a large and prospering urban center with an ethnically, culturally, and religiously diverse population, which sounds a little familiar for those of us who live in Chicago. So the people that Paul was writing to Mainly, the main people of this church in Corinth were people of lesser means and lower social standing. There was some diversity in there, but but mainly he was writing to people who who didn't have much and weren't seen uh, as anyone uh, worth looking into or looking looking at, for that matter, in their society. So this was a church that had issues. So I'm reading this from the Harper Collins Bible, one of the Bibles I read, and as it sometimes will uh, take a look at and giving context to passages. So here are some of the issues that this congregation is dealing with. There's jockeying of rival groups for control. There's an indifference to flagrant immorality going on. There's disregard for those who are not fully enlightened about appropriate Christian context. There's marginalizing of the congregation's disadvantaged members. There's specific issues for those who boast that they possess special religious wisdom or knowledge. There are, in other words, there are people who said, I've already arrived. I am already, I've fully received Jesus and I am good. So that's the context. It's important, I think, to name that because I think Paul is saying a couple of things here by saying we see only dimly. We see in a mirror dimly that we know only in part. Paul mainly is talking about eschatology, which means that Paul and, and those believers, early believers, believed that Jesus would be coming again, returning after the resurrection, that Jesus would come and bring about the full heaven and earth, kingdom of God on the on earth and that they were anticipating it happening happening very soon. And so Paul is saying, we know through the resurrection, we know a little bit, but when Jesus comes again, then we will know more fully. That's what 
Paul mainly, I think, is talking about here. But, but I think there might have been a double meaning here in what, in what Paul is saying. Because he's also perhaps talking to those people in this congregation who are saying, I have these amazing gifts. Specifically, there are people who said they spoke in tongues. I have already arrived. I don't need to see anymore. I don't need to know anymore. And they were also looking uh, askance at those in their congregation who didn't have those gifts. They're essentially saying, please, I have the gift of tongues. I've already arrived. These people don't have it. They are less than me. Frankly, I don't know even why we're in this same community of faith together. So Paul is dealing with that. So maybe Paul is saying to those who have this gift of tongue, saying, "Mm, you have not arrived, friends. You still see only dimly. Paul recognizes that some people are further along in their faith lives. Notice he says, "When when I was a child, I spoke like a child, reasoned like a child. Now I've become a man. I put an end to childish things. So Paul is talking about, so he recognizes that people are kind of along the faith scale, as it were. But... Paul is saying, you have not, you still only see dimly. You only know in part. One day you will know fully, but until then, we continue to look and we continue to love. I think that's part of the the message that Paul is, is getting at. Paul is telling his readers, you need to start looking at yourself. If you think you've already arrived, if you think you've got it down, look again. And I think for us, as serious followers, or at least people who want to be serious followers of Jesus, we're saying we need to look again at ourselves. Especially when it comes to this large issue in our country today of race and racism. And I think one of the things, especially for whites, that hinder us in fully looking at ourselves, and if our knee-jerk reaction immediately when we think about racism is, I'm not racist, we need to look and think carefully about that. Especially, we want to take a look, and we'll look at the whole notion and definition of race in future sermons, but today I want to talk a little bit about what's called white privilege. And you may have heard this phrase, and white privilege, I'm reading this now from a, from a definition from the, a book called White Anti-Racist Activism. Uh, it's also on the website of the Southern Poverty Law Center, and it says this, White skin privilege is not something that white people necessarily do, create, or enjoy on purpose. Unlike more overt individual and institutional manifestations of racism, white skin privilege is a transparent preference for whiteness that saturates our society. White skin privilege serves several functions. First, it provides white people with perks that we do not earn and that people of color do not enjoy. Second, it creates real advantages for us. White people are immune to a lot of challenges. Finally, white privilege shapes the world in which we live, the way that we navigate and interact with one another and with the world. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, what does that mean? How does that play out? So, for example, and this is from another organization called Crossroads, and some people from our church have gone through this training about being anti-racist called Crossroads. And here it says, think Think for a moment about these questions or these statements and see if it applies to you and if this is true or not. It says, as a white person, I can find positive role models depicted on TV, in the newspaper, and celebrated as heroes in most of our national holidays. I can attend college or professional school and find most professors look like me and talk like me, and most of the curriculum reflects my culture, history, and background. 
I can shop in most stores and not be followed by a security guard on suspicion that I might be shoplifting. I can be late for a meeting without it being attributed to my race. I can easily find artists' depictions of God, Jesus, and other biblical figures that match my skin color and facial characteristics. I can shop for a house without having to worry that the realtor might might not show me all available houses in my price range. And finally, no one thinks I got my job because of racial quotas. So these are, I think, invisible things that whites in our society, for the most part, enjoy, that people of color do not, that we don't, that whites don't think enough about. Now, and a response sometimes from white people is, you know, it makes it sound like, white privilege makes it sound like I have an easy and carefree life, that I don't have any anxiety or stresses. And, and when we think that, then we shut down, and again, we fail to look at ourselves. And we're not say, I'm not saying that because we benefit from white privilege means that you have a carefree life. But I am saying that if we are serious about loving, if we are serious about following in Jesus' footsteps, that we must look deeply at ourselves, at our own biases, and then also we must look to see how others might be burdened because they don't have the privilege of being white in our society today. In my sermon, I'm going to show a a brief uh, clip uh, called The Caterpillar and the Snail, and it shows a little bit, gives a bit, bit... a different perspective, perhaps, on individuals. Uh, it's, it's a humorous little kind of cartoon, but I think it really gets at somebody who experiences something easily, and they don't realize that someone else doesn't experience it. So I'll put that on my podcast page, and you can take a look at that. But I want to share, if you're, if you're at all struggling with this, and if you're thinking, this doesn't apply to me, I, I see everybody equally, I, I would ask you, friends, to to look deeper. I struggle with it. I've done reading on this. I try really hard to, to be someone who advocates on behalf of people of color. I do my best to, to work to tear down systems that oppress people of color. And I still have implicit bias. Sometimes you read about implicit bias that just automatically you just think about it or respond without truly reflecting on how you, what you are doing or what you are saying. So here's an example. Last week, this is last week, last Sunday, I was taking the train to our Wicker Park site here at Urban Village, and I'm actually reading a book right now called America's Original Sin about, about racism in our, in our country. And I'm literally reading this book as I'm on the train. So the train is going, and a, a young man stands up in the train, and he's black, and he has his hat on backward, and he stands up, and he starts yelling. And he starts going, hey! Hey! And when he stood up and he shouted like that, my first reaction was feeling anxiety. That was my first initial, if I'm honest with myself, with, that was my gut reaction, like something's going to happen. I don't know what it is. But I need to be alert and I need to see if I need to intercede or how I should respond. It was anxiety. It wasn't fear necessarily, but it was anxiety. It wasn't something, it wasn't a positive feeling. And so as I'm watching this young man yelling, hey, hey, I'm watching to see what happens next. And then he pulls out some keys. He said, hey, he was yelling at a guy who was getting off the train. Hey, you dropped these. He was yelling at this guy. He was being a neighbor. 
he was being a good citizen of Chicago. He was reaching out, somebody he didn't know, somebody dropped his keys, and so he's yelling at him so that he could give the keys back. This is my own implicit racism and bias that I have and probably will spend the rest of my life really paying attention to. When he started yelling, my gut reaction was, wow, I wonder what great thing this young man is going to do. My gut reaction was anxiety. What's going to happen next? And as soon as that happened, I was able to see it in myself and say, I cannot believe all this reading that I'm doing, all these things that I talk about Sunday mornings, and I still have so much work to do. I need to work on myself still. I still need to work on myself because I follow Jesus, because I believe in love. That means that I still see dimly. I know only in part. And I think that is the issue for many of us, friends. We see dimly. We know only in part. If we are serious about following the one who truly saw, if we are serious about following the one who was constantly, by his interactions with others, tearing down these systems of oppression, if we're serious about that, then we need to be serious about this walk of being anti-racist, both individually and as a church as well. We need to be serious about it. We need to confess, repent, meaning, and when I say repent, meaning looking at ourselves and then turning so we change our lives and our behaviors. That's what repentance is. We need to repent, friends. I think especially white people. Or as I was reading this past week, someone who said people who are raced as white, and I'll talk more about that in a future sermon. We need to look deeply at ourselves. And we don't do that alone. And that's the good news in all of this. We don't do that alone. We can also ask the resurrected Christ to be with us as well, to help us to see, to be patient with us when we fail, but to constantly both remind us and be with us as we take these deep look at ourselves so that we can begin to look with new eyes at others in our world, especially those who are experiencing this oppression so that we can look at them and see them as brothers and sisters and that we are moved to work on their behalf and with them as well. That is our calling as a gospel people. That's what it means to be a church and individuals without walls. May it be so. Amen. Well, friends, thank you for listening. And as I'm sharing with you, I'm realizing one more time, and this is just the craziness of this time of the year, uh, that next Sunday is going to be our, we're celebrating Urban Village's sixth birthday. And so whenever we do that, all of our four locations come together for one big service. So I'm actually sharing the preaching with our other site pastors. So I won't be recording anything, but there will be uh, a recording of the four site pastors on Urban Village's website. And so you can always go on Urban Village's website to learn how you can uh, hear that message. So until that time, and until I come back with you in two weeks, friends, uh, may the peace of Christ be yours.